0: Pray with me. Father, we have uh, a banquet of Scripture to feast on this morning in front of us that I hope to spread before my friends, those whom I love here. And I pray that you would help us to see the connections between Last week and this week, we seek to get everyone up to speed who may not have been here last week, but I pray that you would forge an unbreakable connection between our understanding of the gospel message this morning and then how that gospel message is found from Genesis to Revelation throughout your word, from Old Testament to New. As we say in our house, every story whispers Jesus' name. Jesus taught it. Jesus believed it. And so may we teach it and believe it in this church, and may it change everything the way that we consider our doctrine and our teaching as a church. And may this have a transformative effect on how we approach our mission as a fellowship and how we seek to share the good news of Jesus Christ, the simple message of him crucified and risen for all people. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week, our our focus in the sermon was 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and we sought to ask and to answer this one question, what is the gospel? What is the gospel? Because there are many Christian doctrines, a believer can make it all the way to heaven without knowing, but the gospel is not one of them. There are many Christian doctrines. A believer can make it all the way to heaven without knowing, but the gospel is not one of them. And from our study of 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 to 11, we concluded that every Christ follower must know, every Christ follower must know the continuing priority of the gospel, the compelling promises of the gospel, and the converting power of the gospel. Hopefully all of that is inside your your sermon outline that you may be looking at right now. Every Christ follower must know the continuing priority, the compelling promises, and the converting power of the gospel. Now, why is that so important for us? Why is that so crucial? It's so crucial and so important for us because of what John Stott once said. Stott wrote, All around us, we see Christians and churches Relaxing their grasp on the gospel, fumbling it, and in danger of letting it drop from their hands altogether. Now, here's what makes a sentence like that so compelling for me personally. Not only is it true that John Stott has been dead for over half a decade, but it's also true that he first wrote those words in 1973. 1973, that's for keeping score at home, that's four years before I was born. If Stott was right in 1973, which I believe he was, he was right to sound the warning to the church that all around us we see Christians relaxing their grasp of the gospel, fumbling it, and in danger of letting it drop from their hands altogether. If that was true in 1973, what would be true of us today in the 21st century in the church in 2016? The gospel, the message of the death and resurrection of Jesus, as we saw last week, it's the matter of first importance in the church. There are many doctrines. A a believer can make it all the way to heaven without knowing, but the gospel just isn't one of them. So let's take the next step in this series from asking and answering the question, what is the gospel, to what we're calling gospel shaped doctrine, how the gospel impacts all we believe. Before we go any further, just want to define a term for us. We've used it, I think, four times already in this sermon, and that would be the word doctrine, D-O-C-T-R-I-N-E, doctrine. What do we mean when we speak of doctrine? It's really quite simple. Doctrine is what the Bible teaches. When we say doctrine, we're thinking about teaching, specifically what the Bible teaches. So when we refer to doctrine, that's what I understand myself to be talking about here. And it's timely Because of today's big idea. So what are we driving at this morning? Here's here's the big idea. Here's what we're driving at. We believe in gospel-shaped doctrine, gospel-shaped Bible teaching, because what we have is a gospel-shaped Bible. We believe in gospel-shaped doctrine because what we have is a gospel-shaped Bible. Last week, you may recall that we made a little distinction, a little distinction, a significant distinction, an important distinction between the gospel and the Bible. When we use these words, we are wise not to use them as synonyms for each other. The word gospel and Bible, they're not interchangeable without discrimination. There's a difference. The Bible is not the gospel. When I say the gospel, I'm not talking about the Bible. However, the Bible contains the gospel, and the gospel is all over the Bible. You're sufficiently confused? The reason we say the Bible is not the gospel is because the Bible is a book and the gospel is a message. When someone tells you that they had a chance to share the gospel with an unbeliever, they don't mean they loaned their Bible to them, although that would be a good idea. Sharing the gospel with an unbeliever, when I say I had an opportunity to share the gospel with somebody, I'm saying that I shared a message, the message of Jesus, of Jesus' death on the cross for us and his resurrection for us. The gospel is a message, it's not a book. On the other hand, don't you see how closely connected these realities are to each other? They're inextricably connected. The Bible is the inspired word of God. Jesus is the incarnate word of God. The Bible is the word of God in a book. Jesus is the word of God in a body. The Bible is the word of God in pages. Jesus is the word of God in person. And it would be a whole other study if we were to ask the question, what was Jesus' view of the Bible, of his Bible, the Old Testament? Uh, very high. <laughs> Sky high, as a matter of fact. He believed that the Bible was God's word written without error in all that it teaches. We believe in a gospel-shaped doctrine because what we have is a gospel-shaped Bible. So here's the first point today. Jesus Christ is the person behind every page of Holy Scripture and all roads in the Bible lead to Him. Jesus Christ is the person behind every page of Holy Scripture and all roads in the entire Bible lead to Him. Now, Our practice as a church when it comes to preaching is simply to really just to preach through books of the Bible, just kind of one after another. And any given Sunday, you'd find us plopped down in a paragraph like you heard Victoria read earlier, and we would just pester that paragraph for all it's worth, and we'd stay on one page drawing out the teaching from it. Um, That is typically how we preach in this church, but that is not how I'm going to be preaching this morning, much less over the next 11 weeks. We're going to do something different. So... What I, don't mean, what I mean to say is that we don't have one particular passage of Scripture this morning. We have six of them. And while you are free to turn to every last page, I certainly hope you will if you'd like to, uh, you do not have to. I don't expect you to. Um, you can simply sit back and allow these passages to watch o- wash over you and, and take some notes as you go, and that might be the best way to use, use the time this morning. We're going to go at a pretty good clip through these verses. Uh, each of these texts are noted in your sermon outline. No surprises here. Um, And you're welcome to look them up now or later. But either way, please hear this takeaway this morning. We believe in gospel-shaped doctrine because what we have is a gospel-shaped Bible. Another way to say that is that once you grasp that the Bible is one whole, then you can grasp the message of the whole Bible. Once you understand that the Bible is one whole, from Genesis to Revelation, then you can begin to understand the message of the whole Bible. The Bible begins in a garden and it ends in a city all the way through points to Jesus Christ. Well, that sounds pretty good, but is it true? Um, As you read this book cover to cover, is there really that sort of unity to the Bible? I can put it this way. Is it really that simple? Answer, yes. It really is that simple. Once you grasp that the Bible is one whole, you can begin to grasp the message of the whole Bible. Jesus Christ is the person behind every page of Holy Scripture. All roads in the Bible lead to him. So where's the evidence for that kind of claim? I'll give us several. First, we could start with the Gospel of John, chapter 5, beginning in verse 39, as we heard it read for us. In John 5, 39, Jesus is addressing the Jewish authorities. He's dealing with the highest level of biblical scholars in the first century. And Jesus says, To the Jewish leaders in John 5, 39, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Did you hear it? Read it again. He's, He's talking to the Bible people in the first century. He's talking to conservative Bible believers. And by extension, he is addressing conservative Bible believers like us In the 21st century, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have that life. What did Jesus say about the scriptures? They bear witness about me. That is an awesome claim. That is an astounding assertion. Now Jesus is saying that he is the central subject matter of the Bible fact he's not done with these guys because in john chapter 5 verses 45 and 47 he gets even more explicit about the connection between him and holy scripture john five, forty-five to 47 jesus says do not think that i will accuse you to the father there is one who accuses you moses on whom you have set your hope for if if you believed moses you would believe me for he wrote of me but you do not believe his writings how will you believe my words If you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? This is even more stunning. This is really offensive to the men that he's speaking with. He is accusing the Pharisees, the Jewish religious professionals, of not believing the Bible. And, of course, he says it in a way that's particularly painful for them because he says, in effect, you know what? I'm not even going to accuse you. I'll let somebody else do that. Moses, on whom you have set your hope. His language is so provocative in verses 46 and 47 because he says, if, if you believed Moses, you would believe me. If you do not believe his writings, who's he talking to? He's talking to the Jewish leadership. He's telling them if they don't interpret the Old Testament in a Christ-centered, Christ-exalting way, they have no claim on the Old Testament. They don't even believe the testament that they claim to embrace. That is amazing. It's enough to take your breath away. We'd like to linger here, but we need to, m- to move on. This, this idea that Jesus is the person behind every page of Scripture, it is not unique to John chapter 5. All roads in the Bible lead to Jesus. If you're open to John chapter 5, just turn back a few pages to Luke chapter 24. Just take you a few pages. Luke 24, beginning with verse 25. Now here in context, it's a wonderful story, it's the Emmaus Road discussion. The resurrected Jesus is walking and talking alongside his dejected disciples. They were dejected because they thought that Jesus of Nazareth was the one to redeem Israel, that he was the Jewish Messiah, he was their king, but it turned out he was crucified as a common criminal, and we know that kings don't go to the cross, and beside that it's been three full days since he died. Now, we don't have time to develop it, but Jesus Jesus is having a ball with these guys. He knows precisely what's going on in their minds. What things are you talking about? What's been happening here in Jerusalem the past few days? And the text tells us that their eyes were kept from recognizing him. I understand that to be a divine passive. I think God kept these two men from seeing Jesus and uh, seeing him for who he was. They were kept, their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And evidently, they had heard about the empty tomb and even a report that Jesus was alive, but the penny still hasn't dropped for these guys. And so he says to these two men in Luke 24, 25, oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? By the way, just a comment here. He doesn't say slow of mind. He says, slow of heart, because the heart of the matter in unbelief is that the heart is the matter in unbelief. It's not that you just don't know certain things or can't believe certain things if you're not a believer. It's that you've seen these things and you don't want to believe these things. So John writes in verse 27, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted them into in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. I hope that grabbed you. Those are for some pretty serious alls. Beginning with Moses and how many of the prophets? All of them. He interpreted them into how many of the scriptures? All of the scriptures, all thirty-nine books, the things concerning himself of the Old Testament. Which scriptures? All the scriptures, and not to put to find a point on it, but just a handful of verses later, Luke twenty-four. 44 to 45, Jesus is speaking with his immediate disciples now. We take it to be the 11, it's the 12 minus Judas. And he says to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, in the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. That is a classic first century Jew- Jewish way of saying the whole Old Testament. The law of the prophets, the Psalms, and the law of the prophets, the writings. It's Jewish shorthand for what we would call the Old Testament. Everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then Luke says, and then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. Jesus believed that the Bible was one whole and that he stood at the center of the message of the whole Bible. I'll give us one more example here in Scripture before we move to point two and just kind of bring this home for some application for this week. Um, In Paul's final letter, 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy, the inspired apostle, is writing to his beloved apostolic associate. Now, Paul was not Timothy's biological father. Timothy's biological father, so far as we can tell, was not a believer. And we learn that from Acts chapter 16, verse 1. It says his mother was a Jew, but his father was a Greek. But his father was a Greek. Therefore, his mother was a Jewish convert that came to understand Jesus as the Messiah Dad didn't recognize Jesus as his king. And yet, that doesn't prevent Paul from referring to Timothy repeatedly in this letter as my son. My son, my boy. Paul became Timothy's father in the gospel, training him in the gospel, training him for Christian leadership. And yet, Paul understands his role in Timothy's life in kind of a, a chastened sense. Paul is appropriately modest and, frankly, just plain honest about his role with relationship to Timothy and how Timothy came to know the Lord and who had the most foundational impact on Timothy. And Paul was certain that he was not that person. So listen to the words of the Apostle Paul in his final letter, 2 Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 14. 2 Timothy 3, beginning in verse, verse 14. But as for you, Timothy, as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. Now, just a quick parenthetical statement about that word whom. If you have one of the red Bibles underneath the seats in front of you, if you have an ESV, an English Standard Version, there is a footnote on that word whom. And if you look at that footnote and just chase it down to the bottom, what it tells you is that that word whom in the Greek is plural. Paul's talking about more than one when he speaks of whom. That means that Paul couldn't have been talking about himself. In fact, that option is excluded based on what Timothy said in the opening passage of this letter. In 2 Timothy 1.5, Paul says to him, I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that first dwelt in your grandmother Lois, and your mother Eunice and now I am sure dwells in you as well the point being that in 2 Timothy 3:14 and following where Paul speaks of those whom had a foundational impact on Timothy and his sincere faith those who taught Timothy what he learned he is talking about mom and grandma he's talking about Lois and Eunice that's the whom of 2 Timothy 3:14 Parents and grandparents in the room, are you aware of the non negotiable, foundational, fundamental, non transferable role you have in entrusting the gospel into the lives of the little ones that depend on you? Single men and women, though you, like Paul, may have no biological children of your own, are you aware that nothing can stop you from becoming a remarkable Christian parent? So far as we know, Paul had no children of his own, and yet he had them everywhere, because he led people to Christ because he discipled men and women in the faith. Okay, parenthetical comment over. back to 2 Timothy 3:14. But as for you, continue in what you have learned, and have firmly believe, knowing from whom you learned it, Mom and grandma, Lois and Eunice, and how from childhood, you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation, which is through faith in Christ Jesus, which, by the way, is why we welcome children not only into this church, but into this sanctuary. From childhood, you have known the sacred writings. Many of you have. Many of you as adults have known the sacred writings from childhood. Acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation, which is through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, did you catch that? Paul unequivocally states that the sacred writings are able to make one wise for salvation, which is through faith in Christ Jesus. The sacred writings have that power. Which sacred writings? But while nearly every chapter and every paragraph and every verse of the New Testament speaks of Jesus, references him, it's dealing with him, we sort of take that for granted. The New Testament, every book, all 27, are functioning and circling around Jesus. Paul is not talking about the New Testament. For the New Testament was not around at the time of Timothy's childhood. Paul was writing 2 Timothy maybe in the mid-60s in the first century. We think he was probably martyred by Emperor Nero in A.D. 65. Let's say Timothy was a young church leader, probably early 30s. You bring it back a, you bring it back a generation. Paul's speaking of the sacred writings that were existing when Jesus was alive in his life and ministry on this earth. And what were the sacred writings at that point? Well, we know it's the Old Testament only. So Paul is saying to Timothy and to us in 2 Timothy 3, 3.15 that the Old Testament is able to make you wise for salvation, which is through faith in Christ Jesus. So you see what this means? This is huge if we can begin to put this together as a church. Once you grasp that the Bible is one whole, then you begin to grasp the message of the whole Bible. Jesus Christ is the person behind every page of Holy Scripture. All the roads in the Bible lead to Him. The Bible says so, and repeatedly. I've just given us three examples of it. So where does that leave us? How how can we begin to apply this in our lives? Well, we do it by connecting point one to point two this morning. So Jesus Christ is the person behind every page of Holy Scripture. All roads in the Bible lead to Him. Therefore, our church... Our church is radically committed to learning, loving, and living sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel. Yep. Therefore, our church is radically committed to learning, loving, and living sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel. Now, we have that phrase, sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel in quotation marks because it's a quotation. It's coming from 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 10 and 11 don't have to turn there, but the point of Paul's language there is that there is such a thing as sound doctrine, healthy doctrine, healthy biblical teaching, good theology, which presupposes there's such a thing as bad theology and sick biblical teaching and non-biblical teaching. But there is such a thing as healthy biblical teaching, sound doctrine, that is vitally connected to the life-changing message of Jesus Christ crucified and risen. Sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel. Here's here's a way to think of it. We've said it before, I think, in this church, that if any sermon preached from this pulpit on any given Sunday were perfectly acceptable in an Orthodox Jewish synagogue or an Islamic mosque, something has gone radically wrong with that sermon. All roads in the entire Bible lead to Jesus. Jesus Christ is the person behind every page of Holy Scripture. Uh, Here's another way to think of it. In your personal quiet time before the Lord or your family devotions, or if you are reading devotional material that's already been written or published somewhere and that's what you're reading for the day, give it this test. In your quiet time or family devotions, whatever time you have in the Word of God, especially in the Old Testament, would your reading, would your understanding, would your application be perfectly acceptable to an Orthodox Muslim or an Orthodox Jew who doesn't recognize Jesus as God in the flesh? If not, something has gone radically wrong with your Bible reading. Jesus Christ is the person behind every page of Holy Scripture. All roads in the entire Bible lead to Him. Is a final way to think of it. Our church has a vision, and part of that vision is to launch what we're calling the Harbor Center for Biblical Counseling. And as we seek to launch this counseling center, what will make our counseling so profound is that we don't actually counsel, at the end of the day, a theory. We counsel a person. What makes biblical counseling biblical is that we counsel Jesus, Jesus Christ is the person behind every page of Holy Scripture, so all the roads in the entire Bible lead to him. Therefore, biblical counseling, it's, it's Christ-centered counseling. It's gospel-centered, gospel-saturated counseling. And our focus at the Harbor Center for Biblical Counseling won't be giving people good advice. It will be giving people good news. And there's a big difference between the two we could keep going. The the implications and applications of sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel are endless and limitless. I've just given you three examples. Are you radically committed to learning? And not just learning. If you're a learner, I want to push you beyond learning to loving, rejoicing, and enjoying the gospel. For only as you enjoy the gospel will you possibly begin to entrust the gospel into the hands of those around you. Enjoy the gospel yourself and then entrust the gospel to others. Are you radically committed to learning, loving, and living sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel? If this does not describe you this morning, are you willing to learn how to become this sort of person? Because that's where we're headed over the next 11 weeks with our sermon series. If you are a Christian, I know you want this. Jesus Christ is the person behind every page of Holy Scripture. All the roads in the Bible lead to him. Now, it's one thing to have this conviction, right? It's another thing to actually uh, have the competency to handle the Bible in such a way that you make moves to Jesus that make sense, that are right there in the text and bring you to Jesus. Um, when we're talking about Christian doctrine or Christian devotion or living a Christ-centered life, uh, sometimes we need a tutor, right? I mean, we need experienced mentors and teachers to help us with this get us acquainted with seeing the centrality and the supremacy of Jesus and the gospel in all of our thinking, and all of our lives. One such mentor for me over the years has been the ministry of Tim Keller. Uh, Tim Keller is the pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in Manhattan, New York. And it was 10 years ago, I sat parked in the uh, Arnold Olson Chapel with my Bible open alongside about 400 other people for the inaugural Gospel Coalition Conference and Dr. Keller preached to us about our gospel shaped Bible, and he gave us example after example after example of how all roads in Scripture lead to Him. Now, you may have already heard this already, um, but it's always good to hear it again, just in case you haven't. And if you're newer in our midst or you're unfamiliar with the ministry or writing of Tim Keller, it is my privilege to introduce you to him with this statement here. So, in May of 2007, I would have been 30 years old. New pastor here at this church, two years into my ministry, I heard Dr. Keller say these words, and I've simply never forgotten it. I can tell you the exact seat in Arnold Olson Chapel where I was sitting when this took place. What do we mean when we speak of our gospel-centered Bible? Well, here's what we mean. Here's what Keller said. Jesus is the true and better Adam who passed the test in the garden and whose obedience is imputed to us. Jesus is the true and better Abel who, though innocently slain, has blood that now cries out not for our condemnation but for our acquittal. Jesus is the true and better Abraham who answered the call of God to leave all the comfortable and familiar to go out into the void, not knowing whether he went to create a new people of God. Jesus is the true and better Isaac who was not just offered up by his father on the mount but was truly sacrificed for us. And when God said to Abraham, now I know that you love me because you did not withhold your only son, your only son whom you love from me, now we can look at God taking his son up on the mountain of Calvary and sacrificing him and say, now we know that you love us because you did not withhold your son, your only son, whom you love from us. Jesus is the true and better Jacob who wrestled and took the, wrestled with the angel and took the blow of justice we deserve so that we, like Jacob, only receive the wounds of grace to wake us up and discipline us. Jesus is the true and better Joseph, who at the right hand of the king forgives those who betrayed and sold him and uses his new power to save them. Jesus is the true and better Moses. We learned that already in John 5. Jesus is the true and better Moses, who stands in the gap between the people and the Lord, who mediates a new covenant. Jesus is the true and better rock of Moses, who, struck with the rod of God's justice, now gives us water in the desert. By the way, Paul says that explicitly in 1 Corinthians 10. Jesus is the rock that Moses struck. Jesus is the true and better Job, this is my favorite, the truly innocent sufferer who then intercedes for and saves his stupid friends. (laughs) Jesus is the true and better David, whose victory becomes his people's victory, though they never lifted a stone to accomplish it themselves. Jesus is the true and better Esther, did you ever think that? He is. Jesus is the true and better Esther who didn't just risk leaving an earthly palace but lost the ultimate and heavenly one who didn't just risk his life but gave his life to save us that we could be brought in. Jesus is the real Passover lamb, the innocent perfect slain so that the angel of death would pass over us. He's the true temple, the true prophet, the true priest, the true king, the true sacrifice, the true lamb, the true light, the true bread. The Bible's about Jesus. You get what he's saying? we might not do it as well as Keller does or be as sophisticated as him, but I hope that gives you a sixth sense and a certain kind of confidence in handling your Bible. Don't be through with these pages until these pages have shown you the person of Jesus and Jesus has stood forth. We believe in gospel-shaped doctrine because what we have is a gospel-shaped Bible. Jesus Christ is the person behind every page of Holy Scripture. All the roads in the Bible lead to him. Therefore, our church is radically committed to learning, loving, and living sound doctrine in accordance with the Bible. Now, as we land the plane here, just a note on this sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel. One of the finest resources we have to teach us this in the life of this church is our very own statement of faith of the Evangelical Free Church of America that was written in the year 2008, originally written in nineteen fifty. Uh, refreshed and revised in 2008. And next week, we officially begin our study of it. And we have never done something like this in the history of our church in the time that I've been a part of it, and I would guess prior to my time it had not happened either. But over the next 10 weeks, it will be our privilege to walk word by word, line by line, article by article, through the EFCA Statement of Faith. The series is called Evangelical Convictions. You saw it on your handout. A study of the EFCA statement of faith. And into the weeks ahead, we're going to learn how God is the origin of the gospel. The scriptures are the revelation of the gospel. Humanity is the recipient of the gospel. The person of Christ is the manifestation of the gospel. The work of Christ is the accomplishment of the gospel. The Holy Spirit is the applier of the gospel. The church, we are the embodiment of the gospel. Open your eyes and see the gospel as the church embodies the gospel. Christian living is about the functional centrality of the gospel in our lives. Christ's return is about the fulfillment of the gospel. And eternity is about the future of the gospel. For some of us, this fall series will sharpen and clarify our understanding of truths that we've known for a long time and cherished, maybe even ever since you were a child. But it will especially be, I think, sharpening and challenging for you to see that how all of our core convictions, whatever we're talking about, It's vitally connected to the life-changing message of Jesus. For those among you who are kicking the tires of and considering covenant membership among us, this series is not only an overview of all that we believe as a church, but it also gives you a pathway to become part of this covenant. In fact, if you will attend this next season, that is the lion's share of the entire membership process. There would be maybe one other meeting we might have to have with you. Um, But we want you to become a part of our covenant if you're interested in covenant membership. And so this series will allow you to do that. Uh, If you've been looking for an opportunity to invite a friend or a neighbor on your list of five, this is a perfect series to do that. Most people, you would be surprised, are curious to know what churches believe. They're curious. They want to know. And most churches don't wear on their sleeve what they actually believe. And so we're not going to hide our doctrine from anyone. We're going to put it out in full view and allow people to see what we believe. And so invite your friends to our church over the next weeks. And finally, if you, just, if you need that jumpstart in the personal evangelism department, I mean, who doesn't? Who feels completely competent when it comes to sharing your faith with those who don't know Jesus? Um, I am praying that this preaching series ignites in your soul a, a passion for spreading the gospel among those who don't know Jesus with those within your sphere of influence who need him desperately. My explicit intentions with this series are to leave us absolutely inexcusable in failing to share this good news with those among whom we live and work and play. We don't want to be stingy with the gospel in this church. And be encouraged that although people who you love may be far from Jesus, be encouraged that if someone in your life that you are close to is far from jesus but they're close to you they're closer to jesus than you think so this season we're going to get the gospel right in order to get the gospel out paul says that knowledge puffs up but love builds up so this series will be lighter fluid on the flame of love for our mission to be and make disciples of Jesus Christ. I cannot tell you how optimistic I am about what the series might spark in our church as well as how hopeful I am about the future of this church. Next week, God, the origin of the gospel. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for what you are doing in the life of our church. We are grateful that you have drawn us into this uh, family, this interdependent connection of fellowships called the Evangelical Free Church of America. And yet, Lord, there there really are very few people among us who have any idea what that even is, what the EFCA actually is, much less believes, uh, what we hold dear, what makes us tick as a movement. And so I pray, Father, this series would just give us the right kind of um, confidence about the kind of team that we're a part of. Lord, I thank you for, for so many churches across this land and around the world. Uh, and I also thank you for our movement, our modest sized but growing movement called the Evangelical Free Church of America. May we, with joy and with great reception, study our statement of faith and see how it is, it is explicitly anchored, not only in the, Bi- the Bible, but then in the gospel. Because we believe in gospel-shaped doctrine. What we have is a gospel-shaped Bible. We get the gospel right this season in order to get the gospel out this season. In Jesus' name, amen.